Hi, everybody. Um, for those of, I know some of you, but for those of you I don't know, my name's Carl Hennigan. I am Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine and Director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine, and welcome to many of you to the MSc course. The title of this talk is, What Has Evidence-Based Medicine Done for Healthcare? While I talk through this, it's a sort of illustration. We often forget about some of the historical perspectives of evidence-based medicine and how the evidence evolved and what that means. And so I'm going to particularly just focus on the idea of heart attack. And you've had a busy day today, question formulation, looking at abstract, thinking about some of the issues, searching. And then tomorrow you're going to look at some treatment effects. So some of this will be really relevant to that. Just to move on to a couple of things. Um, if you go to the CBM site, when I do talks now, and we're all going to do this, if you go there, there's a blog site, and on the blog site here, you can see there's a particular one there, what has EBM done for healthcare? And if you go to that site, I've actually posted this talk with a summary of the talk and a downloadable PDF of the talk, so you can pull it all off and afterwards and think, when you've got nothing to do later on this evening... <laughs> You can have a bit of bed night reading and think, wow, that's fantastic. Not only that, if you go to the blog, at the end of the blog, I, you can leave a response or comment. So at the end of this, we're going to talk about some of the issues, maybe 20 minutes. We're going to think about just some of the issues. So this talk, basically, I'm going to just take you through, is a, is a timeline from about 1960, 1970, but actually some bits of it go back hundreds of years. And when you start to think about something just as simple as a heart attack, there are loads of really interesting points in there. This is the first report in the Lancet of the antithrombotic properties of aspirin was published in 67. 74 was the first ever aspirin trial. You can move forward here. Editorial by Richard Peter, I'm going to talk about that. In the 1980s, the in-hospital mortality of a heart attack was about 13%. And there's been a whole raft of publications, 31 randomised trials of aspirin there in 1988. Six years later, 145 trials. And then moving through, there's been a raft of evidence carrying on again. That brings you right up to date where you can come through. And I'm going to touch on all of these, ACE inhibitors, a little bit of beta blockers, and some really interesting stuff that's happening right now like the use of oxygen in heart attack and the use of adrenaline in clinical, a clinical trial that's going on now. So this actually gives a whole structure. When people say to me, for many new treatments, what should the evidence base look? Heart attack is actually almost a seminal understanding of EBM. So let's move on. First ever trial, aspirin, 1974. It's not that long ago, is it? It's only 40 years ago. Indeed. And this is by Peter Elwood here, published in the British Medical Journal, a randomised trial of acetylsalicylic acid in the secondary prevention of mortality from MI. But interestingly, when you do look at the timeline of aspirin, there's the first trial of aspirin. 1996, FDA approves aspirin for use in suspected MI. That is not that long ago, is it? But if you do go back, what, what was happening? If you go right back in time to about 1758, you get this chap called Reverend Edmund Stone, who was a fellow down here at Wadham, who found out about the bark of a willow tree. And here's his report in 1763 of the many useful discoveries. And down here, I have found by experience to be a powerful, astringent and very efficacious in curing aguish and intermittent disorders. That's fever, I think, in old language. But all of them basic scientists for 200 plus years were set on this discovery. And it took till 1974 to move forward to clinical trials. And when you look at it, it's actually about here. This is um, in Mississippi. 
in about 1950s, the first reports of observational studies that were starting to say, actually, we've got people on aspirin, they don't seem to have a heart attack. And then beyond that, about 1967, started to see reports about the platelet aggregation effects. And particularly some of these effects were not aggregated normally when this is in. But here, the bleeding tendency after aspirin ingestion that the drug may have antithrombotic properties. So we're in the 60s now, people going, we're doing the basic science, 200 years after the drug discovery. And then, as I said, we moved to this trial. And this was very profound at its time. And interestingly, if you look at this trial, it's an interesting one. If you move just a few years later, this is the first trial here, MRC1 trial, 1974, randomized 1,239 patients. And many of you tomorrow will have heard of the Cochrane Library. And here's a slide that Peter Elwood and Archie Cochrane used to take round. You can't, didn't have internet in them days, didn't have Twitter, didn't have all the TV. So this was their slide for the dissemination at meetings about the effects of aspirin when they'd have a whole bunch of doctors trying to disseminate clinical trial findings. And what you can see there is they're proposing the six first trials. All six trials had 10,859 patients and the weighted overall effect of aspirin was a 23% reduction in all-cause mortality and the p-value is 0.001. So that was their way of saying, and if you think about it, this is really before Cochrane. Cochrane came about six, 15 years later, in effect, in the thinking. This is the start of why we need meta-analysis, why we need six systematic reviews. And moving on, I'm just going to put this up, because at the time, Richard Pito, who's here in Oxford, published an editorial in The, Anth in the Lancet, and Jeff's nodding there, because Jeff has probably read The Lancet in 1980, but most people in this room did not read The Lancet then. They were still at school, some of us. But actually, he put this and said, oh, this is a really important stuff. Large trials, putting them together, gives you a systematic effect how you look at treatment effects. And importantly, if you take Richard Pito's work, what he did is eight years later, then publish the overview of 31 trials in patients with a history of TIA, stroke, unstable angina, or prion MI. And this is antiplatelet trialist collaboration who still exists today in Oxford and still work out the clinical trial service unit. Really interesting, and so published in the BMJ. And when you look at this, it's really interesting. If you take these articles, these old articles, boy, can you learn a lot. And if you look in the first point, two main purposes. Overviews they include far large number of patients than individual trials do, and hence yield results that are far less subject to random error compared to the single trial alone. Now, that's an incredibly important issue when you think about some of the trials today that come out with one single trial, maybe manufacturer-funded, maybe very small in nature. And what he's saying is if you do that, you get a lot of random error around that result. That might become a bit more obvious tomorrow, but over a lifetime of evidence-based medicine, this random error is really important when we sit there and go, oh, this could be false, this positive finding. The second issue is not actually, well, I'll read this out, they avoid the substantial systematic bias that may be engendered when dozens of related trials have been conducted and just a few become well-known. For trials may tend to become well-known partly because their results are unusually promising or unusually unpromising and that issue is quite interesting. 
we would call this today, if you take away the public, it's like publication bias in effect. But I consider this is in the olden days, before the internet area, there was a real marketing and bias towards positive results. So not quite publication bias, but had the same effect as publication bias. And that's a really interesting issue that we still suffer with today is about half of all trials go unpublished. There was not as many trials as there was then. In about the 70s, there was probably a couple of thousand trials each year. Now we're talking about 40,000 trials each year. So if you take them results, you'll see tomorrow, you'll learn about this is a forest plot. And here down are all the single trials. These were the bigger arms of the wider confidence intervals, the smaller trials. And these are the bigger trials with the smaller confidence. And if you follow this down, you start to get this 25% across all trials in all cause mortality. And that is a forest pot. That's the purpose of systematic reviews. Allows you to give rise to a precise estimate. And moving on from that, I mean, it's really interesting. There was obviously an explosion in trials of aspirin. Because in a six-year window, we went from 31 trials to 145 trials. That's a huge amount of trials. Now, if you think about it, now when we look at drug treatments, we often think, I mean, I, we did some work in Tamiflu, which you'll all be aware of is a really important issue and has been a six, seven years of my life. But actually, the number of trials in Tamiflu is actually incredibly small. It's about 14 treatment trials four or five prophylaxis trials, and in, and in children, it's about four clinical trials. But here you're seeing for a large effect size, 145 trials. I think there are about three learning points, and maybe there are more. One is it was easier to do trials then than it is now. We've made it much harder to do trials. The regulatory pathway means it's really difficult to get people in clinical trials, and it costs a lot of money. So in the old days, you would probably think, 30 years, it's the old days, it sounds like, hundreds of years, done it, 30 years ago. You probably thought, I'm not quite sure about the effects of this treatment. Maybe I'll set up a trial and do my own trial in my own hospital. You could probably get ethical approval by the end of the week, set up a simple randomization system and probably run a trial within a couple of weeks. Is that fair enough, Jeff? You mean? A little bit extra, maybe a few, a month. But around the globe, you would be able to do it really simpler. And you would just do simple tests like flip a coin, maybe. And we used to accept flipping a coin in the old day. I think that's that's one. Two is the amount of replication makes you less uncertain effect. If there's a bias in one or two trials, you will iron that out with all the different trials that occur. And I think that's an important because if you did one large trial with 100,000 people and you had an inherent bias in the design of that trial, it would systematically affect all of that trial. Whereas if you do a number of independent trials, it's highly unlikely, say, for instance, they have one issue within the randomization. And then I think my third point is to say, having 145 trials, and we'll see later, allows you to do lots more interesting subgroup analysis if you can get the individual data. So they're my three points. And moving on, so aspirin still remained a really interesting topic, I think, throughout its life cycle. In 2005, an editorial in the BMJ said that everybody over the age of 50, not quite there yet, but I will be soon, will have to take an aspirin. And that's a good idea. Indeed, you know, and it's interesting, and I put this point that whatever comes about, there's a continual need to look at some of the issues about what we do and question what we do all the time. And that's what happened. The aspirin trialist collaboration have now changed their name to anti-thrombotic trialist collaboration. 
<coughs> bit of a mouthful. I looked at this in the primary and secondary prevention, 2009 now. So this is only a few years ago. And asked this question about some of these effects. And so if you look at the effects in primary and secondary prevention, what happens is if you take, say, for instance, males over the age of entry age 50 to 59, in secondary prevention, you get this vascular death, quite a big difference. But if you look at primary prevention, the difference is only about 0.5%, the absolute di di difference. You could still do a relative effect, and you in the moon will still see that's greater than 10%, so relative looks okay. But it's offset by this increase in GI bleeds. So any small reduction is offset by the increase in gastrointestinal bleeds, and that's exactly the outcome. So we do not recommend aspirin in primary prevention. Ten years ago, we were going to give it everyone, but because of this difference between primary and secondary effect, absolute effect, not relative, it's a really important issue to understand when you look at absolute, and as the baseline risk comes lower, you often get this problem. We could turn and say that's exactly the same issue we're now looking at with cholesterol lowering advice that we've had in the UK. What we want to do is lower the, the risk that at which we'll give treatment. And people are probably thinking, well, haven't we been there before? So aspirins are really interesting. Okay, I'm going to move on now. Aspirin, I, that was a quick tour. Here's another one. And I want you to think of as I'm talking. Imagine if we didn't have any evidence-based medicine. And we just decided we were going to do treatment based on our own observations, our own experiential learning. Because that's what we did up till about the 70s, in effect, because with no clinical trials. You come in with your heart attack, and I might make a decision, probably up till about 1980, I'm just going to treat you as I think my peers would treat you. So think also, I wonder what it would look like, the world, if we didn't have an EBM approach. So this is a book by Thomas Moore why tens of thousands of heart patients died in America's worst drug disaster. Very good book. You can buy it for a few pounds, about £7 on Amazon, although every time I recommend it, the price goes up for a few weeks and then it comes down. Um, you will have heard of the CAS trial. It's a really interesting trial, in effect, because of what it revealed in terms of excess mortality for these drugs, antiarrhythmics. And if you look at it, it's a really profound. You could argue that this trial started the whole of the evidence-based medicine ideology because observation said that clinicians use this drug because it stopped the arrhythmias in the heart. The electrical conduction problems that come after a heart attack because they've killed a bit of heart, they can be seen on ECG, these drugs stop their arrhythmias. But unfortunately, some people literally drop dead. And when you look at it, um, at least a decade before the initiation of CAST, it was recognised that these had an increased risk of subsequent arrhythmic death as compared with patients without these arrhythmias. But that recognition was based on observational data. And we continue, I continue to get this, and there's a real mantra around now that we should use big data and observational data to inform treatment effects. And that's a big interesting issue, actually. But actually, this should warn you off immediately to go, Hmm, this is a bit of a bad news. So for about 10 years, people used these treatments widespread until the, the trial was published. And this is a preliminary report in 89 in the New England Journal of Medicine, which clearly shows whether the use report is you should not use. We conclude that neither enconade nor flecainide should be used in the treatments of patients with asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic ventricular arrhythmia after myocardial infarction even though these drugs may be effective initially in suppressing ventricular arrhythmia. 
10 years, lots of death, more death on that treatment than more Americans killed in the whole of the Vietnam War. And that's what the book, Thomas More's book. So I think that's a profound uh, interesting issue about the use of randomized trial evidence versus the use of observation. And I'll come back to that point. And sometimes statistics is not very difficult. You don't need the numbers, do you? And this green line is the survival, and that's the people on placebo. And boy, do you wish you were in the placebo group, because you can see it's a dramatic difference very rapidly. OK. Accumulating the evidence. Here's another one. Thrombolysis. That's a treatment we've used in, um, in heart attack, and we continue to use. And this is a really interesting paper by chaps called Antman and Lau in JAMA in 1992. You'll probably see this in the course. Somebody will probably use it at some point. But it's a really interesting piece. What happened is you had these initial early trials, and you can look at the recommendations in textbook reviews. Here's 21 not mentioned or not recommended experimental and so here but here's the small trials and when you look at them small trials what it was basically saying by the 1980s there were 23 small trials and bleeding could be a side effect there were two small to answer the question does thrombolysis save lives in patients with heart attack and it thought about suggested that the benefit might be about 20 lives saved per thousand patients treated so actually quite a big benefit but nobody's using it, doctors are not convinced, nobody uses the treatment. So what happened from there is basically in the next, next few years, what we saw is a massive increase in very large-scale trials. ISIS-2, JISI, and these trials came on board and clearly answered the questions. And here what you can see is this is a cumulative meta-analysis. And as you go down, the confidence interval is getting smaller. By tomorrow, you should all know this. Today, you might be like, wow, what are we on about? But by here, you can see a very narrow confidence interval, 48,000 people in the randomized trials. Huge amount of people randomized. Importantly, the textbooks, still some not mentioned, some experimental. It takes quite a long time for textbooks to appear. You can see routine in textbooks. And actually, that's really interesting. It's reflected in the evidence base. Because if you look at the evidence base, this is in the Lancet, shows in the Trent region the uptake of thrombolysis. And there's the Gissy trial, the large trial. There's ISIS-2, still no uptake. Takes about another six months to a year, and then we see a dramatic uptake over the next three years as the evidence comes in. There is a lag, but do you know what one thing I've always been convinced by? Is that actually clinicians are really good when the evidence base is good. They don't need guidelines when the evidence is strong. Often what we get is guidelines when the evidence is poor quality, uncertain, and people tell you what to do and we all argue and moan about it. But actually what we really want is guidelines that say, here's a really important evidence, and actually what we should do, if you want to get the most benefits out of healthcare, we should be doing the things that are evidence-based in 100% of the patients all the time optimizing treatments that are known to be effective. And we often don't do that, we discard that. And a good example of that is this paper then moving on, is what's called the golden hour. And if you look at the golden hour, it's, a, it's a looking at the thrombolysis papers and taking that evidence and looking at the relationship of the time to onset of treatment to that effect on mortality. And when you do that, you end up with this, which is called a meta-regression, and you see the red line, Absolute benefits per thousand treated start up here about eight to, and as you get down here in a window of treatment delayed by hours, you can see it goes down to less than 10. That means if you 
delay treatment by one hour from zero to one to one to two hours, that will cost you around about 30 lives lost. The best place to have your heart attack in the whole of the UK is in Reading right now. And they, we still publish a 90 minute target. We don't publish 60 minute targets. I don't know why, but if you wanted to save a lot of lives, this is the one intervention that would be amazing to optimize within an hour. But nobody ever talks about optimizing them. And if you did that, you'd have to buy in everybody. You'd have to buy in patients, because they can't sit around going, I've got a bit of chest pain, half an hour later, maybe I'll ring the doctor. You have to buy everybody in the sequence, don't you? And operationalize that and do that really well. We never talk about doing these things. They're on the periphery, but we certainly could push this line back in here in a one hour window. Okay. We've had primary angioplasty, I won't touch on that, but that's sort of in the same issue as replaced the concept of thrombolysis and the evidence for that has strong 23 randomized trials, so lots of evidence there. So moving on, cholesterol lowering, lots of evidence again in cholesterol lowering. When you look at cholesterol, there's a lot of research actually, a very huge amount of evidence. Here's the 4S trial, one of the early, that's in chronic coronary heart disease. Here's Wascott's done in Scotland in primary prevention. And then we've had these yellow ones. Have we changed the definition? We had to go, oh my gosh, we've got to start again and do it in acute coronary syndrome. But a huge amount of trials have, been gone, have, have occurred. These are the large-scale trials. There are many small. If you take all the small trials, it's about 135 trials again. These are the ones with over 1,000 patients in them. And here's the 4S trial. That's a 30% relative risk reduction from 11.5% to 8.2%. So if you take that out of 100, 11.5% to about 8 people's lives saved. And the interesting bit about that is the risk reduction is sustained over the long term. Six years of follow-up since randomization. And then, not moving on, we've looked at evidence and people have not stood still because in the 90s when this evidence came out, you had to have an elevated cholesterol to be treated after a heart attack. And HPS, which was done here in Oxford, coordinated here in Oxford, looked at a different, that looked at 20,000 people and randomised them to statin or placebo, but then looked at the baseline cholesterol levels, the LDL, and looked at the effect across them LDLs. And basically what it showed is, irrespective of where you start, the benefit is consistent. And that, again, changed practice radically. Going from, actually, you've had a heart attack, we'll measure your cholesterol. We go, you've had a heart attack. Actually, this is 2002. We're going to treat you with a cholesterol-lowering agent because, on average, you'll get this 25% reduction in mortality. So, again, evidence radically changed practice in the way we thought about it. And it's interesting. Nowadays, when I teach medical students, we just take this as granted. This is the way we do these things, don't we? But actually, when you think about it, what's interesting about this whole talk is actually every single decision is based on really sound evidence. And you can move on. We looked at cholesterol, and this is part of the, the issue now. They've looked at 90,000 participants in 14 trials and started to look at people primary and secondary prevention. They're looking at the IPD collaboration. And right now, you can look at cholesterol. The issue is, the guidance is, NICE said, let's lower the risk to 10% to give people cholesterol. What's been the problem? The problem is the people who've done this work in Oxford never collected some of the adverse event data. So they've had to go back to the drawing board and say, could we have your adverse event data for this individual data collaboration? Why is that a problem? If you've got, we were looking at this just this afternoon. If you've got a 10% risk, well, actually, I looked at my own risk. My own risk in the next 10 years 
came out as 5%. Not bad. Don't smoke. I've not got diabetes. I try and keep myself fit. If I take a cholesterol-lowering treatment, I can lower that from 5 to 4%. But I've got to take the tablet every single day. And it didn't quite have all the adverse effect data because my risk of diabetes is about half a percent. And we can't quantify the adverse effects in terms of muscle fatigue. But there is studies out there suggesting it's equal. But some of this is not reported from these large trials. It's not been reported. The question we had is at what point, and I think this is an important one, when would you, what risk would we as clinicians, forget patients, as clinicians or as health professionals, at what risk would you decide that it's important for me to take a treatment? Because remember, the relative effect stays the same. The absolute effect gets greater and greater as you go up. So when you get to about 20%, your risk can come down to about 14, 15% of a treatment of an absolute event. So you get much greater absolute effects. But actually, we haven't even asked ourselves what we would tolerate. And then we're expected to communicate this with patients. And I'm not sure what we use. I, we like these blobograms and these diagrams, but our patients just want sometimes a, a simple communication from ourselves. I think the field of evidence-based communication is right up for grabs now. It's really interesting times because the internet area has made our patients much more knowledgeable. Okay, beta blockers, another one. Really interesting. We're nearly at the end now. I'll just do these a bit shorter. Beta blockers again. Loads of evidence about beta blockers. This is a 1999 uh, BMJ paper by Nick Fremantle showing all the absolute effects. But what's interesting about beta blockers is actually the first ever paper trial was in 1965, before aspirin. And this is the effect of propanolol in MI in the Lancet. So actually quite a long time ago. But one of the interesting things about beta blockers is this trial, the COMET trial. So we know beta blockers using this. What was helpful about the COMET trial, 40,000 people randomized, is it clearly showed that in people with cardiogenic shock or who have any hemodynamic instability, you should withhold the beta blockers. And actually, they're the people who do really badly and consider starting in hospital only when the hemodynamic condition after MI is stabilized. So that changed the way we treatment. Other evidence also changed the way we think. We used to not give people C with COPD beta blockers. But actually, a 1998 trial, 201,000 patients with acute MI, this is the difference. Actually, they do tolerate beta blockers. So actually, we shouldn't withhold them that as a treatment. ACE inhibitors, I was at medical school when we looked at the HOPE trial. And this is the use of Ramapril. Clear in, important difference in terms of the relative risk effect and the absolute effect in people with coronary heart disease. Okay. And finally, clopidogrel. So these are all the treatments, and clopidogrel is probably the last trial. This is part of the COMET trial, 40,000 people. Very small reduction, only a 1% absolute reduction. So you need an awful lot of people to say with certainty a 9% relative risk is actually only a 1 per 100 patients will benefit from so you do need a lot of people to understand that size of effect. Okay, and then this really does interest me. In these last two, just finishing up, this is a Cochrane review on the routine use of oxygen in patients with heart attack. <coughs> and when you look at that Cochrane review, and this has been in the news, in fact, actually, it looks like is there is about 25 to 30% more heart damage in patients not given oxygen. It's three small trials, 
So we're in the same position as when you have benefit or harm. You've got random error. So what we need now is large trials. And there are two large trials I'm pretty sure going on at the moment. I haven't checked on trials.gov to answer this question, which I think, again, would profoundly change the way I think about mechanisms, expert opinion. Because when I was in training, oxygen was the wonder drug. And actually, air is the wonder drug, it looks like, not oxygen. And you can think about some of the mechanisms. And then here's another one. I got asked about this uh, in the news. Oxford Ambulance Air Services accused of playing God and putting lives at risk in new drug trial. Chairwoman of Oxford Health Group, patient voice Jackie Pierce-Jervis said what they are doing is basically playing God by enrolling people into this trial. I think it's a very worrying trial. I'm highly suspicious when healthcare services don't publicise trials. Director of the Oxford-based Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine says there are areas of clinical practice where the effects of what we do are uncertain and drugs like adrenaline may cause more deaths. And here we go into antiarrhythmics in the 80s. I don't know about the CAST trial, but I did say CAST. So I must say, <laughs> going about the CAST. And kill more Americans and the number of men dying in the Vietnam War. Well, actually, it is the CAST trial because the T in CAST stands for trial. Yeah, so it's CAST trial. Yeah, okay. And... Finally, so here's the Paramedic 2 trial. It's looking at whether adrenaline is helpful or harmful in treatment of cardiac arrest that occurs outside a hospital. The key about this trial is, is they are randomizing the ambulances to adrenaline or not. So if you have your cardiac arrest at the roadside, you, they will be blinded and they won't know what treatment you get, so you don't get consented. And that is, in terms of uh, like stroke or in certain situations when we've done the crash trial for when people have had head injuries at the road, that's a completely ethical way to answer questions of uncertainty. So, and lastly, there's a big movement now, which I think this presents an interest in. This was just out this year. This is from the American College of Physicians. And if you tell to me the Americans three to five years ago were coming out with evidence-based statements like this, I would have thought maybe we'd lost the war or something had gone badly wrong. But what they're saying is we've looked at the evidence and they have understood the principle of overdiagnosis and too much medicine. And in looking at the evidence, they said there is no evidence that cardiac screening improves patient outcomes in asymptomatic low-risk adults. The number of false positives is too high. You end up in a treatment cycle that's a, a disaster and it costs a lot of money for no benefits. And that basically is overdiagnosis. And that's a really important issue that the Americans are grasping. They do about twice as many diagnostic tests as, say, the UK for no added value. And the cost of that is crippling their health service. So, finally, think about the discussion I want to have, and we just have five or ten minutes, or you might want to think about it and comment. Consider the consequences of a health system without an evidence-based approach. What do you think it would look like if we stripped all of that evidence out? And then what would the treatment of heart attack look like in an evidence void? How do you think we would track practice in hospital or when people came out of hospital with all that evidence not in front of us and in, in place to make treatment decisions? Thank you for listening. Fire off with, with, with a question, comment. Can I hear more about the, the lipid lowering or the cholesterol lowering? So you're saying that no matter what, wherever you start, the treatment effect with a, with a, a statin drug is the same, that it, that it, that it reduces your the relative... Yeah, so the relative effect of a statin is about a 30% reduction in mortality. Relative effect. Right. 
And so if you start your baseline, and that's what they've looked, they've looked consistently across all the different baselines and said, so if you start at 20%, absolutely your risk. And so if you're, when I'm about 65, with the same blood pressure, if I don't smoke, and if I have diabetes, I'll be a 20% baseline risk. If I then take the statin, I can reduce my risk from about 20 to 14%. So that's an absolute effect of six for 10 years of treatment with a small increase in diabetes and I might get some muscle pains. The same issue now is if I take that statin at 5%, at 30% is around about rounding up four. If I go to 10, that would come to about seven, maybe just a little bit more. You know, so that's what the argument is. So the key is, for that ab relative effect, at some point you'll say the absolute benefits are so great, I'm going to take the treatment. Well, if you have a heart attack tomorrow, your risk of another heart attack goes immediately beyond 30%. So you can see beyond 30%, the risks are significant because you come from 30 to, that's 10 lives per every 100 people treated. So we've gone from a secondary prevention to a primary prevention. What we don't know and this is in the discussion, I think. If we start to treat a whole swathe of population at low risk, I think we should do the trials again. Because we don't understand what type of behaviours they may adopt if they suddenly go, well, it's okay, I'm on a statin. I think I'll, I think I'll take up smoking again, actually. What's the problem? The doctor said I'm going to live forever. I might eat more. I might get diabetic. I might stop exercising. So we don't know. You can't just say blindly. We would like to say, let's just blindly, because actually the number of people in them trials were some time ago, and actually we may be different as a population now in some way and behave differently. So I think it is crucial that we should still consider doing the clinical trials. The, the reason why you get the same percentage reduction, no matter where you are, is a consequence of the log dose response curve which is a basic pharmacological phenomenon. It applies to all drugs. If you draw the relation between the effect of a compound and the concentration of drug producing it, and therefore the dose in effect, you get a thing that looks like that. It's a rectangular hyperbola, and it plateaus. So above a certain dose, you get no more effect. If you transform the x-axis to a logarithmic axis, you get a sigmoid curve, right? And between 20 and 80% of the maximal effect, that sigmoid curve is approximately linear. And that tells you that for every unit change in the concentration of the drug, you get the same percentage change in effect. The same thing is happening with cholesterol. If you reduce your cholesterol by one millimole per liter, you reduce your risk of a, a coronary event or a stroke by 10%, no matter where you are, because it's a logarithmic curve. So, what you need to do is go and read. Maybe we have to put that up in the reading list. Read the IPD paper, because that's all in there, that transformation. That's a, you know, and that's moving on to another level of understanding. Any other thoughts? So, what do you think, my question to everybody is, what do you think would have been different if we, if we got rid of the EBM bit, the evidence here? And many of you might have thought about the Can I just ask, Carl, um, from your experience and from the other GPs in this room, what's the percentage of P uh, GPs who keep up to date with the latest you know, outcomes from um, evidence-based research? Yeah, no, that's an interesting... Well, we haven't worked how to keep people up to date in any sense. Um, I don't actually think you do need to keep up with so many things that we think. 
I think there are actually a small number of treatments that we should just optimize and do really well. And actually, we have all these new treatments and new potential, but actually, I think we have to devise a self-service that says, actually, we're not going to do this. This is still uncertain. We're going to hold this back. Our job is to think about the bits of this. So the problem is, and this is quite, so the problem with going to primary prevention is we still know there's about 20% of the population walking out with a heart attack today who have not got their treatment optimized. Our public health won't want to do anything about that. We haven't got enough time to do anything about that. And so we just say, let them walk around and do that. And that's what we should be optimising and telling other people, until we've done that, sorry, we ain't going to your primary prevention and your lower. We're going to get the maximal benefit here. I think there's a failure. The reason I like this story is there's a failure for many other interventions and treatments to do as much research as this. But I think you can basically say when the research is sound, everybody would go, well, actually, in an MI, we understand, based on the evidence, why we do these five things, treatments really well. And we would put that to our patients. But lots of other guideline stuff is based on much poorer quality evidence. And I think our job is to start to reject treatments much more forcefully when the evidence is not good enough or insufficient. And I think there are many areas we would be able to say, sorry, we're not going to treat this in this way. The problem at the moment is we perceive any new piece of evidence is just as valid as, as, as 145 trials of aspirin, isn't there? So the next time you see a new intervention, ask yourself this question. I wonder how it would stack up against aspirin in terms of an evidence base. How would it fit? What would it make me feel like compared to all them trials, all that work? I bet, bet most interventions wouldn't even match up to Elwood and Cochrane's original dissemination of six trials. Going, look, here's a really important effect. Yeah. Yeah, so it look as good, but if it had been done earlier on So there are two important yeah, so, you, so there are about three or four important points there. The first is you've got much smaller benefit to work with. So that tells you you need bigger and bigger trials, more larger trials than you did originally. And so most trials now are underpowered quite considerably. And you might think six, seven thousand people, the amount of error that's potential in that is still huge. So most trials, new trials, are underpowered. The second issue then is you do see this at the FDA a lot. You think, how has this drug got away with going to placebo when there are established treatments already? And that's a real problem. And then the third issue is, and we've looked at this with Jeff, right? we ended up writing a piece for the MRC here, is comparative effectiveness. No drug companies want to do treatment A against treatment B. So now you've seen an establishment of a new methodological approach called network meta-analysis. Really interesting, quite nice for the mathematicians in the room. They really love it. It's a new way of doing something. They're all excited about it. But basically, they're putting in a load of rubbish into the machine. And it creates huge issues that really still want the randomized trial of treatment A to the established treatment B. So you're right, aspirin would probably have had to have been a bigger trial. It might not be as effective now in secondary prevention if you've had the newer agents. Really important issue. Um, you said a couple of questions ago that the great for all treatments have evidence like this, um, which is good for heart disease, which is common. Um, I work in pediatric surgery where some of our congenital diseases in order to get 48,000 patients, we about 100 million births. Yeah, yeah. Do you 
how, in a rare speciality, how are we ever going to get the evidence based? Yeah, that shouldn't still, I mean, they've done it in cancer, haven't they? So what they've done in cancer in paediatrics is create a whole network, not only in the country, but across the EU. And I agree with you, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. And so you should be asking yourself the question, what you're really looking for is dramatic effects, aren't you? If I don't do surgery, this is really important and it's not. So number one is you don't need randomised trials if you get dramatic effects. And a dramatic effect is you don't need a randomised trial to show you that if you jump out of a plane, you need a parachute. <laughs> okay, that's the best one. But there are things like if you don't stop somebody bleeding, because it's all about confounders and bias. If, so if you have children that if you don't operate at birth, they die, and you do, they live, that's a dramatic effect. But actually there'll be many things you might do in practice that you think, hmm, this is really interesting. Can we, do children get pulmonary embolism, or are we going to reduce infections? And you could just end up doing more and more work on the basis you haven't got the clinical trials to underpin what you're doing. And this is an important area which is in orphan drugs. Orphan drugs are about what, less than 1 in 1,500 people. And there's a massive explosion in these drugs now. Because actually you get some things, you get um, exclusivity, you get tax breaks, and you're the only person who's allowed to market that drug for that indication for 10 years. And so you get things like uh, ibuprofen is remodeled and has an exclusive license for patent ductus arteriosus. The price has gone up 8,000 times on that basis because it got one license. But your, your point is, you will come to a point, and surgery is coming to this point, is it's a lot of areas that are going, hmm, we need some evidence here about what we do. My thoughts are, in a generation, you will have changed the way the old system works. There are people at the old end who are still going to end their careers like this, but you knew it will come in and go, we have to question what we do. So it's only a cycle of like, it's only 40 years ago we were asking that about aspirin. In the modern world, you might have these global networks where you all work together and go, actually, we need a big trial, we're going to answer this. Um, I think we will come to this understanding. We can't afford not to. We can't afford you to be wasting us a load of money, you know, and spending hundreds of thousands on some new way of doing surgery. I'll give you a good example. When we got asked, I got asked to look at the data and published on the metal hips. I couldn't believe how bad the data was. You know, you've gone from a 3% failure rate at 10 years to a 20% failure rate at, at three years for a, a change in somebody who went, we're going to just change the way we do this operation because people get to back to work quicker. And that was really interesting. And that's how it, So I suspect there will be also mandatory registries for all surgical interventions. Implants, there will be mandatory registries, and implants that are implanted in the body will ask for clinical trials going forward. We can't afford it otherwise. Carl, what about really well-designed observational studies worrying about potential confounders and the like when you can't do a randomised trial? Yeah, so, I mean, I guess the best uh, observational study that we've ever seen was the one in D Oxford done by Richard Dull. And... I think oh, oh, the number one priority, so the smoking cessation, 50 years follow-up, 99.8% of all doctors followed up. It's an amazing study. Most of what we do now is crap, because we do retrospective studies on databases just because they exist, and that's big data, if you like. It's very dangerous. However, when you do prospective studies, you can set them up really well. You can start to input in things called propensity scores. You can look that up about trying to understand the risk stratification of the individuals at the outset. You then follow all the patients up 
and create a ability to look at that data going forward. And that's exactly how Thomas Charnley invented the hip in the first place. He was a master evidence-based medicine person. He followed everybody up and he refined the intervention. So I think, and then plug in some of the criteria from Bradford Hill. And if you do that, you'll have a potential to look at what you're doing without randomization. It still will be problematic. One more, we'll take one more on. This morning we talked about, um, I think when, uh, I guess it was at the Center for Evidence Space Medicine when a cart was taking around. Yeah, yeah. No. No. And I think that was, again, an interesting issue. Nobody's ever been shown that following an evidence-based approach, using evidence to inform your decision, makes a difference to people, population's outcomes. But I think, um, to me, taking aside however busy it is, it really worries me when I see people who don't practice in, in some evidence-based way. Because the decisions they make sometimes are really dangerous and often are stressed and overworked because they can't reel back from ideas and go, well, it's okay, we don't need to use that treatment. The evidence says we're okay. And it's a really interesting way of working that I can't understand how anybody would adopt that because I would find it incredibly stressful because I'd be like, I'm making decisions here and I have no idea what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, apart from my colleague told me it was a good idea. And you see, that's what you're really saying, aren't we? Now, what Dave was saying with the cart was, actually, when we're in the busyness of everything, actually about half of things we do, we could change if we had some evidence to hand at the time. Nobody still really should solve that issue, have they? Because we still know better off in terms of the technologies. And there's a problem now. The amount of information is not getting more concise and better from it. It's getting bigger and bigger, isn't it? So every time you look at it, most people in this room and everybody outside of this room uses Google as their number one search engine. And we've got a, a, a really smart IT chap working with us on a DPhil who can show us that 97% of people will only use the first page as their only ever resource for what they use to inform their decision making. And that's how it generally works. And so when you think of all that stuff going on and what we do, I think it's a very interesting time, but it's not got easier. I think it's got actually a bit harder and nobody solved the point of care source thing. And I don't know if you have any thoughts about how you would practice in an evidence void. It's a difficult issue, isn't it? Okay, look, you've got a long week ahead of you. And this should set you up for some of the things tomorrow, but have a think about when you're going through, what does it mean when you've got evidence to hand compared to naught? What would it look like, the world, if you didn't have any evidence in any areas? Think about the areas, like you said, in paediatrics, where there's low evidence, how you might use some of the levels of evidence. There's still always evidence there. There's no such thing. I've never come across anywhere where there's no evidence. Because if, if the best evidence is opinion, that's what you have to go with. Have a good week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Carl. Yeah, thanks.